Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Hello, Mike. Good morning. Hey, so we're this is number 40 for us. 40 yeah, there's like uh, 40 home runs, 40 stolen bases. You know, I don't think I ever hit a home run in my whole baseball career. It's <laughs> really pathetic. But welcome to The Crux, everyone. And we've got a great episode this week. A terrific guest, Jackie Adams, later on. And Mike will tell you her background, but we're going to talk about a book she's got out with a co-author on women of color. First, we're going to get to the news. Look, Mike, last week we had a pretty thorough discussion on some changes to social media platforms that they're making to their policies to counter things such as disinformation. And then this week, since that episode, since number 39, I guess, it was in the news again. Twitter had censored an article or distribution of an article from the New York Post. This is the New York Post article on Joe Biden and the alleged hard drive that they found with information relating in emails that President Trump and his supporters have kept. And, and did you catch the fuller story? I mean, it's really weird. The information came off of a laptop that supposedly belonged to Joe Biden's son. Right. And, and, and he took it to a place to be fixed. And normally, if you take something to be fixed, how do you get to the place that all of a sudden you're tapping through somebody's email you're right. and then you're sharing this? And there's even some story about the person who worked on it was supposed to be blind. Yeah. How did they read the email? Well, um, and Joe Biden's son, Hunter, by the way, this is the, the son that the Republicans have tried to make an issue for a year now, probably. He lives in L.A. And why would he drop off his computer to be fixed in Delaware, of course? And, Mike, I don't know if you, you got into some of the forensics of this, too. If you look at some of the emails they are clear forgeries, right? They're they're not actually emails, they're images on top of images. So there's a lot of sketchy stuff about this. Yeah, and, and as you and I know in campaigns, be wary of any late stories in a exactly. campaign, right? Right, this is one of these 11th hour madnesses, right? Well, I Where... remember like going back to the, it made me think of the Bush campaign. Remember the 60 Minutes piece yeah. on George Bush and the Texas National Guard? which turned yeah. out to be some forgeries as well. So to your point, yeah. not the first. Yeah. Even reputable organizations can get roped into things in kind of the flurry of the moment. Right. And I just think, you know, one, I, I do think that Twitter has done kind of the right thing in terms of trying to establish a policy. So there's, you know, a broad line right. that they're going to judge things by. But I think they probably need to be a little bit more careful as you get kind of in that 11th hour of the campaign. I just right. think that, you know, I think being an arbiter is difficult. That's why you do need to set up a policy or rule at the same time. You know, I, and, and I get it that if you're going to be a policeman in this space, then you need to be a policeman. Right. And you don't need to get in the business of feeling pressure from the outside. And somehow that's 
prompting you to second guess how you're going to actually orient around pieces of information. Well, so, so, so I think this is, I mean, I, I think on one hand, Twitter has done a great job in terms of establishing kind of a way in which they're going to manage this. I don't see the rationale and the rationale hasn't been made all that clear, which I think is problematic in terms of their ability to police this in the first place. Yeah, well, they, at first, as you know, they prohibited it, I guess, if, if mm-hmm. you will, uh, block, yeah, but it got then- blocked by the policy. And then, and then I always like this, the name of it, the hacked materials policy, since this was allegedly the result of a hack. The other thing that I thought was, by the way, interesting, tangential, is <laughs> I don't know if you saw the interview with Rudy Giuliani, the president's lawyer and former mayor of America, who's, <laughs> who- Sounds I'm, like a guy you like, Gary. Yeah, well, <laughs> I did that at, at one point, like other Americans, you know, he, he allegedly uncovered this material He did an interview over the weekend that said there's a 50-50 chance that he got the information from a Russian operative. (laughs) So it's just wild. There's Rudy creating yet another story. (laughs) Well, here, I'm going to go really off that now. And also when you, Mike, leak information that you hope is detrimental to your opponent in a political situation, I don't know if you saw this, Mike, but one of the emails, alleged emails, was from Joe Biden to his son, Hunter, while Hunter was in rehab. And the salutation on the email to Hunter from Vice President Biden was, good morning, my beautiful son. Uh... Right? And, and to me, that's the most human thing I've seen in this entire campaign. When you try to do a hit job on your opponent, you better make sure that it's a really hit job and not something that helps him out. But anyway, Mike, my last question on this is because I've been all over the map on it is, you know, this is going to be something that we're going to face a lot in corporate communications and all kinds of communications. And boy, I just think Twitter should have had this mapped out to your point earlier. How can you, at the 11th hour, be making a decisions and be then revising them? Shouldn't they have anticipated this was coming and had clear policies which to follow? And that would allow corporate communicators, agency people, and, and people in politics, et cetera, to understand what Twitter is and is not. That, to me, is where the company has, has fallen down. And I do think that the reality is, you know, that we're going to continue to see crazy stuff happen, you know, in the last couple of weeks of a campaign. And, and, and you're going to have to brace for it. And if you have things that, that cross your desk and you have a policy and the policy states X, now's not the time to start making exclusions. Exactly. All right. So one other thing relating to tech But this one deals with Facebook. We talked about this a little bit last week. They had set up an oversight board, which was supposed to begin this month, making rulings on what is allowed on Facebook's platform and whether its policies are fair. Now, that Facebook oversight board had trouble getting started. Mm -hmm. And so some stakeholders decided they were going to start their own oversight board called Mm -hmm. the Real Oversight Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. and composed of 25 experts from academia, civil rights, politics, and journalism, including Facebook's former head of election security. And this activist group recently declared that, quote unquote, democracy needs its own PR team and creative agency. We are it. 
So this faux oversight board for Facebook mm -hmm. announced that it was beginning work. Lo and behold, I think two days later, Facebook announced that the real, real mm -hmm. oversight board was going to begin to do some work. So I just look at this, not again to beat up on Facebook, but that the case demonstrates the influence stakeholder activism can have on an organization's communications and operations. You know, as you know, Mike, we both come and you're still in corporate communications. We learned how important it is to consider the role of stakeholders in, in your operations. How do you view stakeholder activism these days? What does this case tell us that it can move a powerful company like Facebook off the dime by implementing what the company itself had failed to do? You know, I mean, I think a lot of companies react this way. A lot of companies get committed to take an action or get committed to doing something that impacts the general public. And when they don't follow through in today's age, I think you're going to see activism sort of show its head. And what they have now is essentially dueling banjos. They're going to have their own oversight board, and then there's going to be this external board that's going to do its work. I guess the key is they need to be very clear about what they've committed to, and then they need to follow through. And in this particular case, what I think they also have to do is in some framework kind of say, you know, we appreciate any other input that you might have to this Correct. process. Yeah. Because I think if they stiff arm the other group, they're going to create additional stories for themselves and, and it's going to be painful. Yeah. I was going to suggest the same thing is that this is a time for Facebook to sort of open its doors and its ears to this group and see what they can contribute to their own. And maybe there's a way to do to do both. By the way, I should have said on Twitter, too, some of the actions they took with regard to the New York Post article is going to end up with uh, Dorsey, the CEO, in front of Congress this week. Ah. Virtually in front of Congress this week. So another issue that, you know, the last place you want to be is one of those chairs these days, particularly if you're a tech company. You know, another wrinkle in this is that I think they may, they may not have thought about it before, but I also think that going forward, they're going to need to report out what are the types of things that this board has yeah. been doing so that the Unreal board doesn't really catch flight yeah. in the same way that it might if this is highly secretive. And look, by the way, I'm not uh, picking on the tech companies here, you know, both Facebook and Twitter. They're in uncharted territory. This is absolutely. Awesome. And they're coming into sort of middle ages companies that happens fast these days with these difficult social issues to address. In Facebook's case, recognizing that they are indeed a media company and not just a platform. I think is a good first step. So we'll continue to follow this. So lastly, for the news this week, you know Paul Argenti from the Tuck. Absolutely, at Dartmouth. At Dartmouth, great guy, good thinker in corporate communications. And, and Paul had something in HBR this week on the website on when exactly- It's interesting, the Dartmouth guy going to Harvard Business oh, that's School, right. right? And our two guests actually are graduates of Harvard Business School. Ah, very nice. You know, I, I'm with my- It's always a good segue, right? Yeah, my Siena, you got Georgetown. I'm not gonna mention, Siena's a great college, but you know, anyway. 
when exactly should a company speak up about a social issue? Yeah. And Paul writes on HBR, you know, that it, it's impractical to think that companies can address every issue that arises. And that is certainly true. Uh, so many things happening so quickly this day. We've talked about agility and speed for corporate communicators, particularly. So Paul put this framework together and he says there's three overarching questions to this conundrum. Does the issue that you might possibly speak out on align with your corp company strategy? Can you really meaningfully influence the issue? And will your constituencies, I guess, in other words, stakeholders agree with your speaking out? And finally, Paul recommends that companies aim to create response playbooks. I guess this would be akin to a corporate uh, crisis playbook that allows them to both anticipate and address hot button issues in society. So Mike, what do you, you know, you, you've done this before in the companies yeah. you work for, you're doing it today. What do you think of Paul's framework? Well, and indeed this framework actually follows kind of a framework that I've used with clients when I've worked for an agency and in sort of creating an issues management tool that would allow them to kind of do what Paul's saying here. You know, I really strongly agree with kind of his first two principles. I think that uh, you have to think how, how this is aligned with the company's overall strategy and the direction that it's going in and have a good understanding of, of the organizations, the stakeholders that, that matter. I think it also, you need to think about, is this something that you think you can influence? But I think influence isn't even as important. When you look at his third question, I think it could, could go further. You know, he says, uh, will your constituencies agree with speaking out? I think that the real key here, is it relevant right. you know, to the stakeholders that matter to you? And are they gonna find your positioning meaningful? Whether or not they agree with you is, is I think somewhat minor mm -hmm. because I'm sure there's lots of issues a company could take that a majority of your customers or majority of your share owners are going to agree with you, but is it really worthwhile? So this notion of relevancy and this notion of how meaningful is taking that position to that particular stakeholder group enormously important in this equation. Mike, do you think that, I'm leading the witness here, yeah. do you think that companies have raised expectations to a point where they can't meet them. In other words, using social media for a variety of things to speak out on. Has we kind of got there last week, right? We talked right. about the, the, the company that traffics in Bitcoin yeah. and how the CEO stepped back. And the right. CEO said, said, nope, our business isn't about taking positions on social issues. Our, our business is about X. So that notion of how this relates to the lifeblood of not only the company, but all of its constituencies or stakeholders is really key in terms of, you know, do you play or, or do you not? Exactly. And I agree with you. I think, look, not everyone is going to agree with you. Why not? <laughs> right. no, and, and I know that Paul, his point there is a little deeper than I'm allowing for given our time. Yeah. yeah. But you're ultimately have to make a decision based on your values and to absolutely your, uh, absolutely and look you know but look how far companies have come mike oh. in the last 
three or four years really on this topic and then how far they've come in the past year. I think it's- Well, you know, and, and, and a lot of companies stood tall even on a, on a complicated issue, you know, when uh, there were lots of issues on the ballot uh, in, involving uh, gay marriage. A lot of Fortune 500 companies in the U.S., you know, took a position that was somewhat brave, but they did exactly what you're saying, is that they thought about the values of their, of their organization. They thought about what this might mean. And that's, you know, and that's terrific. So, so I think you're absolutely right. Well, this is a great article by Paul Argenti and just came out the other day, Harvard Business School. I'm going to see if we can post it on the Crux website. You know, you have to be careful about these things. You know, the, if you don't get permission. Well, from, we're going to have to get our own hack board. Right, exactly. You know, they <laughs> are police after you. So uh, I'm not promising, but I'll give it a shot, listeners, and try to get it posted. So great discussion, Mike. And let's go to our guest. Our guest today on the Crux in the spirit of truth in packaging is someone I've known for, for years. In fact, going back to probably the early 1980s when she was a broadcast news reporter covering Capitol Hill. And I was this little uh, press secretary for a United States Senator trying to get my guy some coverage. She went on to cover the 1984 presidential campaign and then the Reagan and George H.W. Bush White Houses. After two decades as an Emmy Award winning CBS News correspondent, she launched a second career as a communication strategist. And for a period, she also was a counsel to Burson Marsteller, Jacqueline Adams, has just launched what may be her third career in that she has co-authored a book with Bonita Stewart, the vice president of global partnerships at Google. The book is entitled A Blessing and the subtitle Women of Color Teaming Up to Lead, Empower, and Thrive. Jackie Adams, welcome to the Crux. It's so wonderful to be with you, Mike. I'm, I'm overjoyed. So am I. And you have to be ecstatic with how well the book is doing. I mean, listed among the top new books on Amazon. Congratulations. Yes, yes. It's, it's wonderful. We, uh, Benita and I have kind of been on a whirlwind of interviews and events, and we've got a lot more scheduled. And it's an important message, I think, especially in this year after this summer to be sharing. Oh, absolutely. Because it's, it's upbeat. It's positive. Yes, there has been a disproportionate impact of COVID-19 and the, what they're calling a she session, the, the recession affecting people of color. But in point of fact, there's, there have been so many wins for women of color and it's, we, we need to embrace them. And we can, we can talk about it in detail, yeah. but we have the ability to transform the US and the global economies. All we need to do is work together, is to team up to do right. it. So the book is coming out, as you point out, during an incredible stretch of time here with the summer through COVID, through the events and, and subsequent protests of George Floyd being murdered. In some ways, this book almost, you would think is intended for this time, but you actually were writing this book ahead of all that craziness. Right. right. Benita reached out to me with an idea for a book about two years ago. 
in point of fact, when you and I were on Capitol Hill uh, almost 100 years ago, we could see dinosaurs roaming outside. <laughs> but uh, people had been telling me to write a book. And I didn't want to write the same book that everybody else was, had written. You know, I didn't want to write just a memoir. I didn't want to write something just about me. I wanted it to have a more significant thesis than, than just my comings and goings. Benita had this idea about the mission of, of unity among people of color and teaming up. And we are both alums of Harvard Business School, so metrics matter, data matter. And so we started with the thesis, we commissioned a poll, and it may be the first survey of women of color in business across four races and four generations. We did a lot of research, a lot of assembling of research, but we didn't see data sliced quite that way. So almost a year ago, we used a, a polling firm of a good friend of mine, Scott Siff. It's called Quadrant Strategies. And Scott has been the pollster for British Prime Minister Tony Blair and for uh, Bill Clinton during the, his impeachment. And actually, he was an, an exec at Penchon in Berlin. And that's when I was working at Burson Marsteller. That's when I met Scott. And he now has his own firm. And so we went out and we interviewed 4,005 American so-called desk workers, Black, White, Latinx, and Asian, and also boomers, and Gen X, and millennial, and Gen Z. And so the findings are, are quite interesting, and we'll talk about it a bit, but it's a thesis, it's data, and the data is illuminated with some personal recollections. Terrific. Jackie, this is Gary Sheffer. Hi, Gary. Uh, thank you for being on The Crux. One of the things about the book that I want to bring up is its tone. It's a very optimistic book. Optimism something that is unfortunately in short supply these days. So what prompted this approach to the book? Probably our own experiences. Benita is a little bit younger than I am, but as I said, we're both uh, HBS alums. And she's had an amazing career as a technology executive. And she's also been an entrepreneur. She's also worked in the auto industry. I was the first female African-American correspondent to be assigned to cover the White House full-time by CBS News. And I sort of feel like, you know, I'm knocking wood here. I've had kind of a golden life. But when you look at the news, when you look at mm -hmm. the data across a range of sectors, women of color are winning everywhere. And everybody seems to focus on the negative. And, and to be truthful, there is some negative. But, but look, at we've got the first woman of color running for vice president on the Democratic ticket. And I covered the first woman, Geraldine Ferraro, a long time ago. It only took, what, talk about that a little later. Yeah. To, uh, yeah, to pick another woman. We've got an African-American woman who's a new anchor in prime time on MSNBC in 2018. 19 women judges ran together in Harris County, Texas. They ran under the banner of Black Girl Magic, and they won. And look at Simone Biles. Anytime she competes, she's crushing it. Look at last month. We had Naomi Osaka won the U.S. Open. I read just at the end of last week that for the first time in history, the U.S. Pavilion at the next Venice Biennale, the installation is going to be done by an African-American woman artist. 
and and that's fabulous. I mean, you just go across the the various sectors. I mean, this may be a little bit superficial, but even all four of America's beauty queens this year right? are women of color. I did. And know. and instead of focusing on the negative, and there are things we need to change, and we have some prescriptions for perhaps changing some of those things. There is a positive story here. And Black women are used to making a way out of no way. I won't go on and on and on, but t but I'll tell you about the entrepreneurial wins as well Ripping. when you want to get to that. Yeah, well, and, and I just wanted to say, and thus the title of the book, A Blessing. Yes, well, there it's, it's also a metaphor. And, you know, a group of birds is called a flock. Right. A group of giraffes is called a parade. But a group of unicorns rare and precious beings. I've been a unicorn. Benita's been a unicorn. Mike has even been a unicorn. Yes. A group of unicorns, it turns out, is called a blessing. Look Pretty at cool. things that we're learning here on the Crux. Terrific. One thing, so I also find interesting, you know, one of the most famous or popular books, I should say, Jackie, has been uh, Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In. Right. Very popular, New York Times bestseller. And she looked at workplace changes for women to come from women who were leaning in and therefore rising to the top. In other words, asserting themselves more in situations across the board. You're talking about a pathway to change best accomplished by teaming up. Right. Explain that for us. I think a lot of women of color who read Lean In, I, I don't want to speak ill of Sheryl Sandberg and her efforts, but a lot of women of color did not recognize themselves in her pages. Yep. Um, I think if you had three nannies working for you, maybe you could understand her experience, but it was a little bit harder for some of the rest of us. Our survey found that 47% of black women report that they are always or frequently the only yes. person of their race in a professional setting. By contrast, 73% of white women said they are rarely the only person of their race. We also found uh, the Harvard Business Review had some data that said that black women are three times more likely than white to aspire to a position of power in their organizations with a great title. We are ambitious. And yet we found in our survey that black and Latin, black women receive twice as much scrutiny on their work and on their job yeah. applications yeah. as white women. That leads to a lot of so-called microaggressions, our judgment being questioned in mm -hmm. meetings and, and quite often, even senior women are mistaken for support staff. Teaming up allows you to overcome some of that, right? Is that? Well, teaming up, but also allying ourselves mm -hmm. with supporting uh, one another. white men, well, also with white men yeah. uh, who, who run the world, sort of, temporarily <laughs> at least. We also have a whole chapter called Dreaming of Allies, and we have specific tips for creating more inclusive leaders because we are their allies too. And I've got to think that in the midst of a lot of large companies second guessing their own diversity, equity and inclusion efforts, that this is really ripe. What are some of the tips that are provided relative to how organizations or how allies should think about all of this? In the chapter Dreaming of Allies, we have a letter 
we write a letter, dear white male allies, we see you. We know more about you than you probably know about us. We are ambitious. We are on the march. We are relentless, but don't be afraid because we are your allies too. And we encourage our white male allies to hire us. And this applies to women, of course, too, obviously, but hire us and hire us in multiples. This era of tokenism of one and done is over. Look for potential rather than perfection. Look outside the areas that you've been looking in already for new hires. Stop looking for people who look just like you to hire. Uh, use a new phenomenon that's called cultural intelligence. Be curious, be courageous, ask questions. There are a lot of ideas there and, and none of it's difficult. Jackie, I wanna build on that point. You know, this is an awkward conversation for some people, right? I, and I think for white men particularly, like myself, it can be an awkward conversation. Why? I say that because it makes you uncomfortable. Why? Because comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's right. why we say be courageous. Right. And that's what I'm, that's my point is, so this book seems to be targeted as well, not just to women of color, but to these allies. And I think right. that's such an important thing because I think we have to admit, some of us, that this is a difficult conversation to have. The intentionality has always been there for a lot of us, but maybe not the action. Well, as you said, it is uncomfortable. But yeah. another driving force that we haven't talked about yet is the demographic that's barreling down the pike. Yeah. Right. I live in New York City and the city is already 60. The population is already 60 percent majority minority. Mm -hmm. California is already majority minority. The Census Bureau says that by 2060, women of color, if not before, women of color are going to be in the majority. But here's another factor. By 2027, which really is tomorrow, young people of color are going to be in the majority. Young people between the ages of 18 and 29 mm -hmm. will be in the majority by 2027. So these corporations, these inclusive leaders are going to have to find and hire these people of color. They're going to have to figure out how to retain them. Well, in fact, we already see it in our universities, in our high schools, in major cities where you have populations that are a majority minority population, if you will. Clearly, you can go to a, a classroom at Boston University. The students are very, very diverse. And well, and the Census Bureau says that Black women are the most educated slice of the U.S. population. Another bit of winning. And also women of color's consumer purchasing power is over $1 trillion. And when you look at the GDP of Australia, for example, it's not that much bigger. So, so we could be our own country. <laughs> well, certainly in terms of kind of economic firepower, it's there. It's there today, right? Now, I want to take you back a little bit because it's interesting to me too that You've done this research. It's a greatly research-based book. You've had lots of key findings, both in terms of how people related to women of color, as well as what they yearn for. 
I'm curious about how did you feel? There's a story that I've heard you tell. It's in the book when you actually graduate from Harvard Business School on live television, on CBS Evening News, Walter Cronkite announces to the world what? That uh, as he was introducing one of my stories, he announced, one of my first stories, that our Jacqueline Adams, who studied agribusiness while earning her master's at Harvard Business School, reports on blah, 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 whatever it was. <laughs> so what did your colleagues think at the time? Because I mean, I think that there, there's some relevancy here. Well, actually, I tell this story in chapter one. Benita and I both relate among our happiest days at work. And for Benita, it was when the second African-American. So she wouldn't be the only, right? Vice president. Yes, she was the first. And for me, it was this day when Walter Cronkite announced my credential on the evening news. And, and it was a happy day for me because I thought that Walter was telling America as well as CBS writ large that in 1979, I was not just an affirmative action hire, that I was a really smart person and was supposed to be there. <laughs> Referring yeah. to Gary here, a couple of my white male colleagues were discomfited. I didn't care. Yeah, well, you know, and, and I think one of the amazing things too, just looking at the span of, of, of your career is, you know, when, when you got into broadcast news, first of all, there weren't all that many women and there were even fewer people of color. And I'm sure that there are lots of stories about mistreatment and whatnot, whether it happened to you or you saw it in others. But how did you persevere? How did you come to be successful? I have my own idea, but I'm curious as to how, how, how was it that you actually succeeded through a period that, that wasn't exactly open and friendly? I must say I stand on the shoulders of giants. I matured and entered the workforce at the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s. And I uh, greatly benefited from the work, the hard work of uh, people in the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement. But there are two paths to answer your question. There's what was going on inside me, but also in the book, I interviewed one of the first people I met at CBS on that first day, Brian Healy, who was the senior producer for CBS, the CBS Morning News. And I asked him what he had known about me before I got there, because on, on my first day, he said, welcome, Jackie, you're going to have a wonderful career at CBS News. And so I asked him why he said that. So which, which story do you want first? What was inside me or what Brian told me? Go to Brian. Okay. Well, he knew that I went to Harvard Business School, so that was a proxy for being smart. He felt a kinship with me that I didn't even know was a thing. He knew that I grew up in Boston, and he's from New Bedford. So he felt a geographic connection with me. Who knew? Yeah. Who knew? <laughs> he said that I was, I, I knew how to do the job. I knew how to write. I knew how to report. So he didn't have to expend extra energy getting me onto the air. I was high energy. Yeah. And yeah. of course there were, and, and you probably know some of the names, remember some of the names. There were a lot of male reporters who are kind of crotchety and old. And, you know, <laughs> and he was- I'm thinking one, of one fellow in particular <laughs> from CBS. But, yeah. and, 
he was the morning news. And of course, everybody wanted to get onto the evening news. So I was there and I could do the job and I wanted to do the job. And he said he felt I was attractive and had a, a great laugh. And that's really, I think, a key. I mean, what struck me as a young kid, and we were both kids back in the day in the early 1980s in Capitol Hill before you, you went off and became even more famous reporting from the White House. But I think that you were approachable and you had a way of giving people a sense that they wanted to talk to you. So, so to me, that's kind of interesting. I would be curious, you know, if if you sort of step back, what might the current you suggest to the younger you, you know, as to what your younger self in terms of what you would need to do to be successful? Well, I think Brian hit on a number of points. Know how to do the job. Yeah. Be upbeat, be high energy don't whine, don't complain. As you said, be someone that people want to be around. In college, we, I, I helped organize a conference about the future and one of the speakers said, we were never going to be able to afford to retire. And so our work and our pleasure should be one. Mm -hmm. And that way we'd never resent having to work forever. And in fact, my mission in life was to have fun every day. And I stayed at CBS until it stopped being fun. And I had given myself an insurance policy. So I had a credential that allowed me to quit and switch. And, and now I, I continue to have fun every day. Speaking of fun, let's talk about the current presidential election. I say that as a joke. <laughs> I got a snapback. <laughs> you covered, you mentioned Geraldine Ferraro, the first female candidate for vice president back in 1984 with Walter Mondale at the top of the ticket. And now we have Kamala Harris running for vice president on the Democratic ticket. What's different 36 years later? Now, I know you had a more of an inside view covering that campaign day to day with Geraldine Ferraro, and you're sort of viewing this from a, a bit from afar, the current election. But do you see any differences or any progress in how those campaigns are being covered? Well, I do, actually. Geraldine Ferraro's downfall is perhaps too strong a word, but the, the central controversy that overwhelmed her campaign was her role in her husband's business. The fact that she signed uh, business forms and she signed tax forms and didn't know what she was signing. And there was some perhaps malfeasance there. I don't know that he ever was, was prosecuted per se, but Ferraro's capability to do the job was not separated from her relationship with her husband. And I don't think anybody has questioned Senator Harris's capability to do the job. And certainly her capability is not seen in the context of anything that her husband does. I know that women candidates back in the day were criticized, I mean, even Sarah Palin more recently, were criticized about the way they dressed and the way they looked. And again, with Senator Harris, the only story that I've seen that touches on that area is complimenting her choice of sneakers. Yes, <laughs> wearing the, she's been wearing the Chuck Taylor Converse. Right, right. Again, I see, I guess, three positives. There's no question that she's qualified for the job. We don't know or care about her relationship with her husband's business. It, it has nothing to do with her qualifications. And she looks great, uh, so great that nobody's even commenting about it. 
we have a situation now where Senator Harris is being judged too whether she's ready for the presidency, given the situation with given the ages of the candidates, ages right? of the candidates, and her energy and, and some of the things that you've mentioned in your book is what I'm trying to bring Senator Harris back to the wins that she's had in her career as a prosecutor and as a senator of the biggest state in the union. And to your personal characteristics, energetic, competent, able to do the job, all have been on display in a way that I don't remember with Geraldine Ferraro 36 years ago. To your point, it was strictly almost well, her husband may be doing some shady things, and can we really trust her? Senator Harris has run for office a number yeah. of times and has won each time. If memory serves, the only job that Mrs. Ferrara ran for was Congress. She and she won her. several times, but she yeah. had not run statewide. And she had not been a candidate for president. Now, maybe Senator Harris's campaign for the presidency didn't succeed, but at least she had a little bit of time on that track. And I have observed again over the years with presidential campaigns, there is a learning curve to yeah. running for president. And I think that maybe the Democrats suffered some last time by basically anointing Hillary Clinton and not giving a larger stable of candidates the chance to go out and begin learning how to climb that learning curve. Interesting, interesting point. Really yeah. Interesting. So, so what would be your advice to women of color who, you know, they've got the education and they're looking to think about their own personal growth other than read your book? <laughs> <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> <laughs> Had to get that in there. But Thank other you. than read your other than read your book, what two or three words of advice would you give them? I said that there were two tracks about how I was perceived by others and how I felt inside myself. And Mike, I think you and I have discussed this in the past. My father was a tremendous influence on me. My very first conscious memory is of my father saying, when you're black in America to be equal you have to be superior. And that's a recognition of institutional racism. And some people say it's unfair. Some people say it's too big a hill to climb. But my reaction was, is, is that all it takes? Because <laughs> the world standard is just passing. The world standard is just a C. And particularly when you're a kid, your job is going to school. And why not put more effort in to get a superior result? And so I did. I love school. I still love school. I'm taking classes at Juilliard even right now because <laughs> trying to music was the gaping hole in my liberal arts education. And now I'm trying to, to fill that gaping hole. But beyond this, this idea, I gained great confidence because I had empirical data that told me that, yes, I was superior. I mean, I got really good grades in school. I got an 800 on one of my college boards. I got an early decision to the Ivy League college that I applied to for college. I only applied to one business school. I started at Channel 7 in Boston in uh, September after graduating from college in May. So I had data that said that, yes, I was a solid citizen. Yeah, but, so kind of fueling your own fire from the hard work and determination, right? But but, but 
I may have gained confidence from the belief, even if I was the only one who saw it, of my superiority. But in talking about this, this phenomenon and doing some research, the truth is, and everyone should hear this, no one is inferior. Mm -hmm. Right. I think this, this fear, this belief in this insecurity is what drives the imposter syndrome. It drives the so-called emotional tax that people of color and corporations have to bear. But I stumbled upon a quote, it was Martin Luther King 50 years ago, quoting Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois from 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Du Bois said that oppressors have imposed a poisonous fog of oh, inferiority yes. I love that on quote. people of color from birth to the grave, but that it's a myth. We, we just have to claim our mental health by knowing that this inferiority is just a poisonous fog. And what do you yeah. do with the fog? <laughs> blow it, blow away. it away or you yes you blow it away or you stumble around but the active the active route is yeah. blow it yeah. away it's yeah. just yeah. a myth it's yeah. not true for yeah. anyone that's right that's right i love your optimism i love the research base of the book i love the directness of your message so what's next uh, ah. Does a blessing move you to something different to better prepare women, people of color? Actually, Benita and I had a long conversation about this yesterday. I would tell you to stay tuned and keep visiting our webs, the book's website, www.leadempowerthrive.com. Okay. That's the last three words of the title, leadempowerthrive.com. We are beginning to develop some ideas for what next. The more obvious thing would be to try to be an umbrella for all. There are so many different groups all around the, the country and the world, but neither of us has the interest or the energy to try to corral all of these different groups. So we're on the cusp of an idea for something different. And it will be, I think, research-based. So stay tuned. But one of the things I love, a couple of the things that I love about the website, and granted, I you know, help conceive it. But uh, we, we have already, uh, you don't have to buy the book, you just have to go to the website to read Ken Chenault's amazing forward. Oh, Ken yeah. Chenault is the former uh, CEO of America, longtime CEO of American Express. And he talks about black brilliance, and the fact that it has been wasted for so many years by racism. So in embrace black brilliance and let it help drive our, our economy forward. We have a preface by former BET CEO, Deborah Lee, because she too had not known the word a blessing as a group of unicorns. And we also have what we call living logs, some questions, some suggestions, some ideas. We have them for almost all of the chapters, but we've already uploaded those questions for the first two chapters. And they, they should be thought starters for people who want to lead, thrive, and empower. Excellent. Thank you, Jackie. And, and thanks to, to both you and Bonita Stewart for, for creating some thought starters for us with this marvelous book. And I wish you much success. Thank, Thank you for you. being with us on The Crux. It's my great privilege. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.